Hello. Hello. Oh, you sound very faint. Oh, I think. I think I know why. I think Is I know. Is it because why. I don't have my volume turned up? No. No, it's it's likely me. Microphone, microphone. What happens when you automatically adjust the microphone settings? Let's find out. Um, Sound better already. Oh, perfect. Maybe that's what it was. Uh, Input. There we go. Okay. Yep. Okay. I think that's as good as it's going to get. I'm at home, so I've got my, like, old Plantronics again. I know. I I just couldn't I just couldn't drag myself to the office tonight, Don. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't do it. Could have dragged your office set up home. I know, but then my children turn it into a playground. It's it's swinging <laughs> from the microphones. Exactly. They swing from the microphones like the uh like the crazy children they are. But but I think I might uh, I I may just get I, I've talked about this. I may just get a second setup and then keep it in a drawer here and then mm-hmm. clamp it up when, when I need it or something mm-hmm. like that. Hey, um, it's, hey. Your, it's your birthday. It is. Happy birthday. Thank you. You're welcome. That'll be – our, our listeners will be able to date this. They'll know when it, when it is, when we recorded it. Well, they have to know my birthday, though. Right. That's true. That's true. Or in, maybe they'll have uh, – um, NSA type uh, uh, <laughs> abilities, and they'll be able to find out when your birthday is. Yeah, or they could just be my Facebook friend. Well, that too, that too. So, uh, so happy birthday! Were there any uh, flamingos on your lawn? Hmm. <laughs> Not the last time I checked. Uh, yeah, it's probably I didn't I didn't do anything. So, <laughs> so unless it was unless it was someone else. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't in your spare time. You didn't fly up to New Jersey, buy a bunch of flamingos and stick them on my lawn. Nope, nope, didn't do it. Didn't even uh, didn't even try to pay anybody to do so. <laughs> there was no uh, very little. I, I put in very little effort on your birthday, Don. I, I basically just uh, had a note to remind myself to wish you a happy birthday when I talked to you tonight. <laughs> so well, apparently check. that worked. Yeah, yeah, got got it. Hundred percent. Very efficient on that. Um, so, so hey, it's been like forever since we talked. Oh, it's been a long time since we recorded a podcast. I've been uh, literally halfway around the world. Me too. I've been. Yeah, that's right. Halfway uh, around the world to the to the d- direct south, and then also maybe a quarter of the way to the uh, to the east <laughs> since we last so, talked. So you've been. You've been in in Brazil, I know, and I also have. in Europe. Yes, yeah, I was in uh, I, I was in um, the UK, in just outside of Manchester. Uh, so yeah, two two trips in the last three weeks, and you've been in China and and uh, parts elsewhere. Uh, yeah, Taiwan and China. Taiwan and China. Taiwan and China. That here's my my Asian the, geography, as they're, as they're confusingly known, the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China. Oh, I can't I can't deal with that. It's very complicated. Do they get the podcast over there? <laughs> I know there's no well, Facebook. I don't, I, <laughs> they probably get it in Taiwan. I'm not sure they can get it in China. I don't know if they they don't have they don't allow Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr. Can you get into iTunes? I don't know. I didn't try. Huh? Maybe. I mean, we could be huge over there, Don. <laughs> we could be hugely popular. Billboards in Japan. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was in, I was in Brazil and, uh, I, I met, 
your former student and uh, p- uh, fan of the podcast, or at least a listener of the podcast, Anderson. Anderson is amazing. He's, I have to say correct, though. He's not my former student. He just oh. worked in my lab. He's actually uh, Bernadette Franco's student. Oh, but, right. Uh, he did. He did spend a year in my lab. So yes. So um, he's like my step student. Your step student. You're just a. He. Uh, it, it was a, a brief trip through the Schaffner lab. Right. Uh, he. Yeah. So he was at this uh, at this conference that I was at called Slacka. Uh, which not is slacker. Not slack. And it's not slacker. And it's not an urban way to pronounce slacker. Like you're such a slacker. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> um, it's that um, he uh, he's he, he's a professor at uh, Unicamp, I think. He now. is. Yeah, and uh, that's the uh, institution that hosted this this big meeting, and it's a meeting that goes on every two years, uh, and has for the last eighteen years. This being the tenth version of it, and I went to it and, and spoke last week, and it was it was cool. It was my I know you you spent a whole month in Brazil earlier this year. It was my first time in, in South America, and I enjoyed it. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. Big the meeting was was big twenty twenty two hundred people. Wow. It's like yeah, it, it's like IFT. Um, like it's it's everything. Uh, food technology. Um, mm. So it's not just uh, uh, food safety. In fact, food safety is probably the smallest portion. Of, uh, of the program. Uh, but it was cool. I enjoyed it. And I met Anderson. Anderson's doing a whole bunch of um, uh, risk stuff, like mm-hmm. risk modeling stuff, as you probably know. Um, but he, I missed his talk. I was uh, at a, visiting another university um, during that portion of the, uh, um, uh, the, the program. And I, I don't read Portuguese, but I picked out a couple of words, and I was like, "Oh, that looks interesting." And I didn't connect Anderson, his name, to Anderson, who you had uh, mentioned, and he'd emailed us about the podcast a while ago. And and I was like, "Oh, I wonder who's doing risk modeling stuff around here." And it turns out it's one and the same. It's him. him. (laughs) So what was the other university you visited? Um, The other university I I visited is called PUC, P-U-C, which stands for – it's a private university also in Campinas. Um, And uh, it – so Unicamp is the public university. Right. And PUC is the uh, Pontifical Catholic University of Campinas. Cool. And uh, they've got a, a, a big teaching hospital and school of public health there. And uh, the, the individual who um, uh, who invited me, uh, Silvana, uh, she's a professor at, uh, at PUC uh, University, PUC Campinas. So I went out there and saw their, uh, their setup for a day and toured around and happened to miss Anderson's talk. But, but you got to meet him. I did. I did. He, he, he uh, sat in on mine and we talked afterwards. So it was, yeah, it was cool. cool. Um, so what uh, what does SLACA stand for? I mean, because oh, the Brazilians, they love they love abbreviations and they love to shorten things. So uh, Unicamp is University of Campinas, and and they're very good at coming up with these pronounceable acronyms. Yes, SLACA is stands for um, the Latin America um, Symposium of Food Science, mm-hmm. <laughs> or if you were to put the acronym together in English, LASFS. 
<laughs> right. right. <laughs> but it translates to slacker. Because it's in Portuguese. Yes, yes. Uh, so I, I imagine it's something like, uh, uh, I'm sure I could find it somewhere, but uh, elementaire is, uh, is food. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so that's in there somewhere. Right. Um, and yeah. So anyway, it was. Uh, uh, it, 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 I can't find it. Exactly. That's okay. what it is. I, I, I get the general idea. Yeah, uh, but it is. Yeah, it's all about uh, some, uh, futon symposium. It was, it was, and it's apparently uh, uh, like uh, a, a sort of a. I mean, it is a big deal. Not apparently a big deal. It was I mean, twenty two hundred people there was. Yeah. It kind of kind of blew me away on how large it was. And what was really interesting about it, it was the first time that I think I had been to a meeting of this size where the students outnumbered the non-students drastically which was really really cool like there were a ton of student posters and student presentations on the first day um and uh the many of the uh of the attendees of the talks were students and they're asking such really really great questions um like it was a very it was very much a um a, a symposia for for education as opposed to, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't even know what to, how to, how to characterize it other than it, it was, it was much more about the students than, uh, than any meeting that I had been to in a, in a good way. Like it was really, that was really, really kind of cool. Yeah. That's, that sounds, that sounds really neat. Yeah. It was good. I had a fun time. Good. And yeah, you, I, I, uh, I really, uh, really enjoyed my time in Brazil. And actually, you're, you're really going into Brazil. Just you know, now is a very good time to go to Brazil because it's actually coming into their their summertime, right? Or at least their springtime, since it's fall and, and winter here. Exactly. And uh, it was it, the first day I got there was pretty, pretty hot. Uh, and then uh, as it was uh, a bit of springtime, they got they had some uh, some rain for a couple of days. Um, uh, but it was it was beautiful. I mean, it was really, really cool to uh, to see the city. And uh, I mean, it's it's just a different I, I didn't even really know what I didn't have any expectations, I guess. Uh, I, I didn't know what what sort of the um, uh the development was going to be like, or um, what the what the cities were going to be like, or, or anything like that, and and it was, but it was really, uh, really quite a fun uh, fun trip to see a little bit of the countryside. So, so where did you see anything other than Campinas? No, uh, I mean other than the the road from Sao Paulo to Campinas. Oh, so, so yeah. You, so you flew into the the you uh, the Sao Paulo airport, not the Campinas airport. That's correct. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Because uh, there is a pretty decent-sized airport in Campinas, but I suppose if you're coming in internationally, there's probably more flights to Sao Paulo. Yes. Yeah, I couldn't sort of make the whole mm. fly to Campinas thing work. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, and it's a it's a fairly short car ride, as I recall, maybe an hour, an hour and a half. Something yeah, like I think it's about um, uh, 100 kilometers or something, 120 kilometers. Yeah, when or or in for for What's the miles. That in American. It's that's like it's like 60 miles, Don. Okay. <laughs> I have to, you know, I just like to uh, like to switch back and forth now that I've spent a uh, couple of weeks in in, in uh, non in, in metric areas of the world. Uh, I'm on Celsius. I've got uh, kilometers on the brain. Use kilometers in Canada, right? Yes, yes. I I'm, although I can't measure myself in inches, or I can only measure myself in inches, not in meters. <laughs> huh. <laughs> and, and, oh, it's, wow. Um, <laughs> there's, 
And so that's a there, that, there's a that which she that's yes. what she said joke in there. Exactly. Right. That's a birthday gift for you there. Just lob that up. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, um, but it was cool. It you, I I don't um, they the people that uh, that invited me, Sylvana, uh, on the first day took me out for lunch and and it was great. I mean the food, the, the things that I learned about Brazil are the coffee is amazing. Um, and I texted you about that because it was phenomenal. I remember you mentioning that, uh, they're, the Brazilians love to eat and they love to eat late, which was kind of cool, uh, except it made me feel like an old man, uh, uh, going out for dinner at nine o'clock <laughs> and I'm, special, right? yeah, and I'm exhausted and, uh, it's, it's one thirty in the morning and, and everyone's, uh, ready to have, uh, some dessert and I'm falling asleep. Uh, but so they love, you know, love to eat and, and really good coffee and, and just really, really great people, great hosts. Um, so Savannah and, and her husband, uh, his name is Antonor. Antonor worked for a, uh, uh, a, a I guess a corporation associated with the government called Etal. I don't know if you, hmm. uh, never heard there, um, I guess a service provider, um, like a government lab that'll do, um, a whole bunch of research and development work for private industry. Um, so I don't know if we have anything sort of like that in, in, Can in, in the U S or in Canada. Um, no, they seem to have a lot of those kind of things in Brazil. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I wonder if, um, we actually had a cool conversation about this because there, the, the way that it was kind of explained to me was a place like Ital is, necessary in brazil because historically there might have been some uh fraud or some corruption of of information or um you know it, it the the real stamp of approval comes from someone who's tightly overseen by the government where i think it would be the opposite situation here um in in North America, where where the government would not want to get involved with someone's micro testing scheme, like other than from a regulatory standpoint, this is not a regulatory body. So it was right. really kind of interesting to see that like different cultural historical reasons on going into this. But anyway, that's where um, you know that, that was one mm -hmm. of the uh, the places that I uh, uh, got to see um, a little bit of. But but um, Silvana and Antonor asked me what I thought about Brazil coming in to Brazil, and I said. Well, it's, I mean, it's pretty much kind of what I thought. There's, you know, really big cities, and it's it's uh, very well developed, and and it seems like a country that's um, interested or increasingly interested in public health and are, are a big player in in um, food and agriculture. And their response was, "That's good. We think that everyone who doesn't live in Brazil thinks that we live in the jungle." Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't, had no uh, perception of that, but yeah. So I, I could see how people would, how <laughs> ignorant people would think that. I guess so, um, but it was cool. I had a really good time. Yeah, good. I'm I'm so glad. I'm so glad you got to go there. I wasn't. I mean, my literally my first trip to I had visited um, <clears throat> Argentina a couple times in the in the 90s. You know, fairly early, fairly early on in my career, but but didn't get to Brazil until just last year. So I'm very envious of you getting to Brazil as such a young. Uh, a young whippersnapper. Ah, uh, yes, it's true. Next, next up will be Taiwan. <laughs> From following your your travel log. Excellent. <laughs> the, um, so, how was? So, you were. What, what were you doing in in the in the far east, as they say? 
Yeah, so um, my my Far East uh, visits were completely uh, as a result of my IAFP uh, presidency. So we have um, so two two things that we we do in IAFP is that every other year we do an Asia Pacific meeting, and and this year's Asia Pacific meeting was in Taiwan, and we actually alternate those Asia-Pacific meetings with Latin American meetings. So next year at that same time or in, the, in, that, in that spot, the um, IAFP meeting will actually be in Brazil. And Whoa. so I'm actually looking forward to get back to Brazil in October of 2014. Um, and the meeting, the Brazilian meeting is, is, I think it may be this same thing that, I don't know if it's the Slacka meeting, but it is, it is sort of an IFT, IAFP, Brazilian mm. affiliate, you know, conglomerate thing and it's going to be in Iguazu Falls which is which is just supposedly it's, it's kind of like South America's at answer to Niagara Falls except it's like way better <laughs> and yeah so I heard I mean multiple people told me and said if you were here longer you need to go out and see the falls yeah so it's like the one the one cool thing I mean one of one of many cool things in Brazil so will so are this, there are there wax museums there though I don't think so. Um, no Ripley's Believe It or Not attractions. <laughs> Apparently not. So and I have to confess, having having grown up uh, not not far from where you grew up <laughs> on the other side of Niagara Falls, I've never been to Niagara Falls. Oh, Don, Don, you've got to go. I know. It's uh, it's like the Jersey Shore. But except the water goes up and down. Except the water goes up and down, and there's a bunch of Tim Hortons there. Excellent. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, so the Taiwan meeting was the IAFP Asia Pacific meeting and it, it moves around Asia Pacific, but this, this time was hosted by a guy named, uh, Lehan Sheen, who's a professor at, uh, Taiwan university. And he's, he's actually, there's a whole bunch of Rutgers connections there because there's a lot of folks that were trained, um, by a number of my colleagues at Rutgers university, but Dr. Uh, Sheen's expertise is, um, functional foods and those kinds of things, but he's gotten very interested in food safety as well. And he <clears throat> basically is just this one, this kind of, this kind of guy that you meet where he's got like a bazillion things going on and he sleeps four hours a night and he knows everybody. And he's just, uh, anyway, he's the, He's the he's just really um, just very energetic and, and and basically pulled this whole meeting together and it was a very very impressive meeting. I mean, <clears throat> I don't know what the whole thing must have cost and he had tons of tons of industry sponsors and uh, just put on just a, a tremendous meeting. Um, just 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 mind boggling how, how good it was. I mean, really good speakers and just a really showed us all a really good time. And then I moved from that to the the uh, meeting in China <clears throat> and that and we'll link to. We'll link to both of these in the show notes, but the the China meeting was something that IAFP has been g- doing for I guess seven years now, and it's a it's a very interesting story. So, the the China meeting is run by this guy named uh, Carrie Sun, and Carrie um, has a, had had a, has had a very interesting life. I think he he's of Chinese origin, but I think he was born in. Bangkok, but he moved to the United States as a young boy and actually lived in Georgia. And so we we actually had dinner together the, the first night and sort of bonded over our uh, time uh, we spent in Georgia and, and compared stories. He was there in the seventies, so so even more um, <clears throat> sort of back in the 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 the. the 
good old days of Georgia. And we talked about, we talked about racism and, and what it was like uh, in, in Georgia in the, in the seventies versus, uh, versus in the eighties. So anyway, interesting, interesting times, but um, the, uh, <laughs> sorry, we've just offended all of our potential <laughs> listeners. The, I, I'm sorry. The, the good old days of racism is, <laughs> is how that I just came across. <laughs> That's not what I meant. I was trying to, I was trying to like, not be, not offend Anybody from Georgia? Yeah. Anyway, I think I've just succeeded in offending everybody. Well, it's equal opportunity offenders. Offender, right. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but anyway, so Dr. Uh, or not Dr., but, uh, but, but Carrie um, basically just had a real, a real sort of hard knocks life and basically sounds like he started his career in cold calling and, and telemarketing. I mean, it's, I mean, he reminded me, and some of the stories he was telling reminded me of uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and just like really just, just busting his ass on trying to make this business work and then eventually got into working for a company that ran conferences and then eventually branched off and started running his own conferences. And most of the, most of the conferences that he, he runs are in the IT field. But at some point, he branched off into food. And what he did was he licensed the Food Safety Summit brand to do a Food Safety Summit meeting in China. But after he had licensed it, the guy that owned the Food Safety Summit sold it. And so then Kerry was working with the people that, that he sold it to. And um, he also made an agreement with the Chinese government to run this food safety meeting. So basically, he's kind of on the hook to Food Safety Summit and to the Chinese government to run this meeting. And uh, because of the the sale, uh, the folks that bought the Food Safety Summit franchise, for lack of a better word, um, were kind of slow to respond. And he kept pressing them and saying, "Look, we need. I need to do this meeting. I need to do this meeting." And finally, the Chinese government said, "Look, if you don't do this meeting, you're in big trouble." And so he went to the Food Safety Summit people and said, "Look, I have to do this." And they said, "Well, actually, we've examined your contract, and you were supposed to run the meeting within this certain time frame." And in fact, you didn't run the meeting in, in this certain time frame. So you're actually in default of your contract with us. And so, number one, you no longer have the license to run the meeting. And number two, we're not going to give you the money back that you paid to license it. So good luck. Whoa. <laughs> and in the meantime, he had been to Food Safety Summit in the U.S. And he had, of course, met David Tharp. And David, because we exhibit every year at Food Safety, we, IAFP, exhibits every year at, Dave, at Food Safety Summit. And of course, um, as you as you know, we've been asked to tell more more David Tharp stories. We have in it, but um, but 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 David, because he's just such a genuinely nice guy, he knows everybody and he talks to everybody and and care. And the story, as 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 basically as Carrie told it to me, is he went to David and he said, "Look, I'm I'm in trouble, right? I mean, the Chinese <laughs> government." Um, they don't get the podcast there, right? No, no, they don't. I yeah, mean, he did. He didn't say this, but basically, so, it was like you know, I don't think they were going to shoot him, but but it was it was like <laughs> he's going to really be in trouble, right? And 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 he runs these a lot of meetings in China, and so if he if he kind of got on the, in the on the bad side of the Chinese government, it would be it would be bad news for him. So he went to David and said, "Look, I, I have to run a food safety meeting, and I have no idea how to do that." Can you partner with me? And 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 basically, and this was before my time on the board. But basically, I, I'm assuming David went to the board and said, "Hey, look, we have an opportunity to get in into China and run this meeting." And so basically, Carrie did 
the legwork. David connected him with all of you know our good hmm. safety friends and put together a meeting and then did, they did a good job and they did it again the next year and the next year. And so they've built this thing up over, over the years. And this meeting um, alternates between Beijing and Shanghai. So Beijing is kind of like the government cent- center of power and Shanghai is kind of like the industry center of power. And uh, generally, the uh, Carrie was telling me, generally the Shanghai meeting is a little bit bigger because you know more, more industry folks turn out. But tons of industry folks turned out for, for this particular meeting um, uh, as well. But again, it was more sort of concentrated on the government focus. And they had a, it was again, really good meeting. I'm supposedly there would not be out of place if you just picked up the entire symposium and chucked it down in the middle of the IAFP annual meeting wouldn't be out of place. I mean, and just really high quality speakers, the opening, uh, the opening morning, there was a session on, it was the 50th anniversary of Codex Elementarius. And so they pulled together a whole bunch of speakers who talked about Codex, including um, the, the chairman of Codex Elementarius, a guy named Sanjay Dave from India, as well as a whole host of folks that have been involved with Codex for many, many years. And just really, just to, just to put together a super, super program. Program. And then, again, uh, I think uh, in, um, what do you call it, uh, pentuplet, uh, five parallel, five or six parallel sessions <clears throat> on, the, on the next part of the meeting. And just a, you know, really, really high quality meeting. Probably the, the Taiwan meeting and the uh, Beijing meeting both had probably 500 or 600 people there. And just, you know, again, you know, uh, uh, um, not an expo the size of IAFP, but certainly dozens of exhibitors and just... Uh, Again, just a very impressive, uh, impressive meeting, and and good, good folks, and and you know met some of the our, our regular our regular IAFP attendees as well as made a whole bunch of new contacts and as well. So, cool, very very good meetings, both of them. Well, excellent, and um, that's a really interesting story about how that that partnership sort of came about, and yeah. and that opportunity, you know, exactly as as you said, is um, you know one one of the the things that I think the um, IAFP as a as an organization has probably struggled with in the last ten years is how to become more international. Struggled may not be the right mm-hmm. word, but um, well, you know, certainly sought to and, yes. and, and have have faced that because yeah, I mean for for many years we've been the International Association for Food Protection, but not but not but maybe in some ways only international in name, not necessarily in in focus, and and certainly the board has. You know, directed David in a very big way to do that, and the the European meetings are part of that. This China meeting is part of it. Doing the Latin American meeting is part of it. Um, and then, of course, we have to also, if we're talking about IAFP around the world, we have to also mention Dubai. Absolutely, the Dubai meeting is coming up. You're you're actually going to that? I'm actually going. I, I leave on on uh, Wednesday night. And, and you know, I. It's funny. I, I I got to the hotel in Taipei and I took a bunch of pictures and I was going to post them or send them to you um, because one word comes to mind in you know to describe the the hotel in Taipei and do you know what that word is, Ben? Is is it opulent? Spanky, <laughs> <laughs> which I believe was your descriptor of Dubai. Absolutely, so I think, uh, Taipei could give uh, Dubai a run for sp- swankiness. Sw- for swankiness. Yes. Um, so, so we've been. Um, uh, this is a good segue because uh, in our follow-up, we uh, have been asked to share some more David Tharp stories. Um, so, and I have a Dubai-related David Tharp story. So here's here's the background on this. 
um, uh, Dina Seidenberg, um, who uh, is at uh, is st a staff member uh, at uh, the International Association for Food Protection, uh, put together a, a comment on uh, the Food Safety Talk website uh, a few weeks ago, saying. Um, her message was thoroughly enjoying your podcast, learning a lot and laughing a lot, not at you, but with you. And I think that was probably directed at me um, because we, because we both laugh at Dawn and she's laughing with me. I, that's what I, that's how I read that. I don't know if, if that's how you read it. So that's a hundred percent. Dina said, uh, keep sharing those stories on David Tharp. Um, and I know you said that bananas don't have to be clean, but can I wash them just because it makes me feel better? Uh, and I think that your response over or your comment back to her was, of course, if it makes you feel better, you can wash them. Um, so Dina, go ahead and wash your uh, wash your bananas. But uh, we will. I will share a, sto a David Tharp story um, right now because I know David listens to us through the through the website uh, as well. Yes. Um, so my David Tharp story is is this: uh, uh, three years ago, uh, first time I went to to this Dubai conference, which I'm going to in a couple of days, the Dubai International Food Safety Conference, run by our very good friend, uh, Bobby Krishna, uh, among others. Uh, but Bobby is definitely the the man when it comes to organizing uh, this meeting. Um, I, it was a, a little bit of a, um, uh, I, I didn't know a whole lot going into it. I didn't know. Maybe this is a common theme. It's like Brazil. I didn't really know much about it. Going to Dubai, I didn't know what to expect. I arrive, and the first person I see is David. Uh, and David and I you know, know each other, um, but we don't really – We like before this time, we didn't – we hadn't really sort of, you know, been, you know, friends or real friendly or anything like that. Um, and so I kind of grasped on to David being there. And so he had been to Dubai a couple of times before and said, hey, what are you doing right now? Um, why don't you come with me and I'll take you down to the Spice Souk. And uh, I've been there a couple of times, know my way around. And uh, so I went with him and hung out all day with David. Uh, he also took me, he, he had, he's like a tour guide, like a Dubai tour guide. Um, so these are things you don't know about David Tharp until you go hang out with him. But he, he knew, he had all these like history stories, took me to a museum. Um, like my own personal guide uh, of the city, uh, and then ended up uh, we went out for for a really nice meal uh, at, at a mall, which was where there are lots of uh, really great uh, uh, restaurants. And um, I had no idea what I was ordering, and so he and I kind of shared a meal together. Um, like like physically, I or he ordered one thing and I ate off of his plate. So David's a pretty he's a pretty nice guy. We had a date is what I'm saying. <laughs> David David and I had a, a really nice date in Dubai. <laughs> That's nice. And yeah, and I have to say that that is uh, that is not a unique story. I spent um I arrived in um uh, arrived in uh, Beijing on Monday, and I had cleared my calendar on Tuesday because David, who who sometimes travels with his wife Connie, were uh, had basically arranged a visit to the Great Wall, um, and so I, I joined them in their visit. It was, uh, but I guess if you if you're in Beijing, there's a couple of places you can go to see the Great Wall, and the one that's further away is a little bit less touristy, and so that's the place where we visited. So we we did that, and then uh, after that went uh, to the Forbidden City, which is basically right smack dab in the middle of Beijing, and it's uh, 
it's not so much a city as it is um, uh, just a, a incredible palace. It's where the uh, where the emperors lived, and, and it was forbidden because none of the regular common folk were allowed to go in there. And then, best of all, um, they took me to their favorite uh, Peking duck restaurant, which is in in the the hutans. And if, again, I don't know how much you know about Beijing, but the hutans are basically the old the old neighborhoods, one story, um, you know. Alleyways, and we went to this literally this hole in the wall place for for Peking duck, um, where they, I mean, we were seated seated literally next to the cooler that had the ducks in it, and and they were already dead, but they were whole intact ducks, heads and all, and uh, the guy would come and he'd grab a you know a rack full of ducks and he'd take them off to the kitchen, and at one point the chef came back from the kitchen uh, with a big roast entire duck roast duck on the plate and said this is your duck (laughs) then went back into the the back room and sliced it all up and then brought it out to us you know no longer looking like a duck but looking like food which i was i was very appreciative of but uh but yeah so david uh, is a wonderful tour guide and especially david uh, when he's together with his wife connie just make a wonderful uh uh, a wonderful tour guide, and they really, they really just—it was just terrific going with them because they had been been uh, to both these places, all these places before, and just uh, anyway, it was just really, really, really nice. So, um, and the other, the other story I have to to share about David is that um, while I was in um, Beijing, the other one, the other people that was there was Gail Prince, and Gail is a former. Uh, a past president of IAFP, and in fact, he was uh, on the board at the time uh, when David moved from being our director of finance uh, to being our executive director. And according to Gail, it took some convincing to convince this young guy who was uh, good at managing money that he ought to be the one to manage the entire association. And it's so funny because David is so um, is so good at his job as executive director, it's hard to imagine him ever not wanting or doing that job. But he's really, anyway, it's just, it was just, it was fun to be there with, with David and with Gail and, and to, to hear Gail talk about, you know, back in the day when, you know, back when he was on the board and he was convincing David to become the, uh, become the executive director. And then the other, the other thing too, well, since, since I'm talking about Gail is that if you're ever in Beijing, Gail knows a wonderful German restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> which we um after eating many many days of chinese food we were we were all ready for a little bit of a change so so gail took us to his favorite german restaurant uh in beijing which was which was wonderful is this the same german restaurant where you heard someone singing uh, chinese neil, guy singing neil, neil young, young? yes <laughs> fantastic about that on facebook you yes, did indeed. you did excellent well that's uh that's pretty good um it sounds like what well, so i think we've uh at least fit our David Tharp stories quota. Uh, I think so. I think for the next couple episodes, probably. Probably. And um, so for for anyone who's listening, I think it, it really sums down to if, if you are traveling somewhere, hope that David's going with you. Right. Because, Even if you don't know him, just just look him up. And, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, exactly. If if he, he – you know what? Uh, I don't know if David um, is, is on Foursquare. Uh, but I don't think so. But he, you know, who knows? <laughs> but if he was, he, my my advice to the listeners would be find him on Foursquare and just see where he is, and hope that he's close by because he knows somewhere. That if he exactly. if he is, he'll be able to take you somewhere cool, exactly. and you might have a nice a nice little date. 
<laughs> a little, little mandate. A little mandate. It was great. Good day. <laughs> Lots of fun. Uh, um, so, so we had uh, a little, uh, a little bit more follow up uh, as well, and this goes. This actually reaches back to episode forty nine uh, on our discussion of the phenomenal urinal that I have in my in my office. Not in my office. Again, I have to clarify in my <laughs> in the building which my office is in. There's no urinal in so my you office. Say. So you say. <laughs> yeah. There's it's it's very convenient. It's right right behind my desk. Um and it's a, it's blue. I I think other people just recycle into that, but I use it as a urinal. Um so anyway, uh, uh, we had this discussion about uh, this urinal that splashes up all over me. And then um, also uh, wanted to ask, I asked you a question about uh, this idea of uh, hand washing and, and some sort of a, a risk calculation on if I just urinated versus if I went to the restroom. And um, you, uh, you sent a, uh, something to our friend Michelle Daniluk and I uh, this morning, actually, on this from microbe magazine and uh kind of an interesting uh little news tidbit uh that urine once thought to be sterile actually has its own microbiome and um there's uh, quite a bit of uh information um and in this uh in this um article that talks about uh some uh uh, some bugs that might be uh, in there um, and that may be the co- actually causes of uh, urinary tract infections. Um, so Indeed, and I, and I had uh, kind of made a mental note, but not an actual note to follow up on this, but then, uh, but then our friend Michelle, who's listening to the podcast, was texting us this morning all about peeing. Yes. <laughs> and so it got me thinking about it. And, and she also said that we might want to... Um, her, let, let's... Let's bring up her our conversation there because she had something that she wanted us to at least talk about, which I don't think we're going to be able to get to today, <laughs> but <laughs> or ever or ever. But that we uh, had a very male centric uh, discussion on this, and she because we're men, correct, correct, and that's really a, the only perspective we know. It's a bias. It's a it's a bias that that I have. Um, and, uh, she suggested that there is a, uh, back to front, front to back discussion that probably needs to happen <laughs> when it comes, <laughs> she can, she can start her own podcast <laughs> or be a guest on this one. Yes. Uh, yeah. And she suggested that we talk to our wives. Um, so anyway, just to, I to, talk to my wife all the time. I talked to her today. I was, I talked to my about that. This didn't come up. <laughs> it didn't come up. It didn't come up. But I'm going to make a note. You know what? And this is probably why I don't have show notes for talking to my wife. <laughs> Maybe I, you should. I yeah. should. I'm going to have to put out some show notes. And uh, <laughs> um, So Michelle's exact quote was, this is so gross, but for girls, there needs to be a discussion of front to back versus back to front. So... Um, so we'll that we'll, we'll save that. Let's. This is follow Put up that in the parking lot, Ben. Yeah, this is follow up uh, future future follow up in the in in the parking lot. <laughs> um, but that discussion, that text discussion, made me think of uh, something that I had read earlier this week about a goaltender, uh, NHL goaltender Pekka Rinne, who is um, 
out uh, due to an infection in his hip, uh, out meaning like he's not playing hockey for the next uh, six to eight weeks uh, because of this infection. And it's a, it's an E. coli infection in his hip. Um, and what my, my follow-up note here to talk to you about was, this is the quote from show notes, Ben's insight, hockey locker rooms are dirty, dirty places. And so uh, there, there aren't a whole lot of particulars on this uh, on this injury, but it looks like um, Mr. Rene had uh, uh, um, surgery and then had some uh, had an E. coli infection afterwards. He had returned um, to uh, to practice and do some um, some work uh, at the hockey facility. And I, so so Don, I know you you played hockey when you were little. Uh, I don't know if you left the world of hockey before you started playing with people that would urinate in your hockey bag. Um, <laughs> um, yes. Okay. I did not. Um, I I went. I, I did not go through the urination phase, but I've definitely um, played with uh, with with less than desirable um, smells on my uh, on my body due to someone um, urinating in my bag, um, which just seemed to be done indiscriminately. I, that's at least what. I hope I don't think it was a case of targeted urination. <laughs> um, also, um, there's you know, gr- growing up in in southern Ontario and it's cold in the winter. Um, there's this, always this like this game of let's try to urinate on the radiator that's that's in the locker room and that which smells ridiculously bad and this this world of like urine smelling and this is not going to make anyone want to play hockey but um this, this <laughs> or listen to the podcast or listen to the podcast yeah yeah um but this this is like I, I you know I, I i play adult hockey now and i'm pretty sure that the adults that i play with are not urinating all over the locker room or the the showers that are in between the locker rooms probably notice right 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 i would know right exactly um but uh but there's definitely some kids that are doing this because it is every once in a while it's just the smelliest place so so i you know um the hockey locker rooms are are dirty dirty places and it is just kind of the the thing that i've always taken as i i know this and i will not i will do my best not to use them uh, as much as possible especially when they smell like a urinal so anyway just a just a little follow up on our urine discussion <laughs> I'm good to, to have that follow up. I <clears throat> the only thing I have to add to it is um, uh, I I was delighted to see that this fellow's name is Pekka because that made me think of one of my favorite IAFP people who is uh, Pekka, uh, whose last name escapes me, who used to be a regular fixture at the uh, the Ilse Suite. Uh, which was a, a, a gathering place where people would would drink uh, at the end of the meeting, and and Pekka's claim to fame is he would fall asleep in the Ilse suite um, in a chair with his head tilted back and would be snoring, and then when the last person left, they just wake him up so he could go back to his room. <laughs> I, in fact, know uh, who this is that you were mentioning from my Ilse suite uh, time, and yes, uh, Pekka uh, from Finland, who uh, I've never talked to but only ever saw sleep yeah yeah he's a nice he's actually a very nice man he's since retired and unfortunately or he retired or job changed such that he couldn't come to i a f p anymore so i i i miss him and, and hope to see him again someday huh, cool um one uh, one other thing that i wanted to uh just follow up on locker rooms which does have a a food safety um 
situation or connection here at least is uh, a couple of years ago uh, CDC in 2010 actually CDC uh, investigated uh, a, a huge well a pretty decent sized outbreak of norovirus among National Basketball Association professional basketball players and um, I just linked in the show notes to the to the abstract from the paper that was in clinical infectious diseases. But it was kind of crazy. It was 24 players from 13 different teams who had passed through. Um, they mapped out sort of all of the cities that these folks had like these players had gone through and you could see all the connections on where this uh where this outbreak how at least it was transmitted not sort of where it started but um where where it kind of went and it was uh it was kind of a cool uh, i don't know if you remember it but um kind mm-hmm. of a cool uh outbreak and i just thought it had a little bit of um connection to a project that you're doing with uh, that we've talked about in a couple episodes on um norovirus in public bathrooms and as a you know public restrooms as a uh, uh as a, a, a transmission place yeah yeah and actually you and i speaking of our travels you and i are going to be in charlotte uh next week uh, and you'll see um you'll see the progress we've made um as will be reported at that meeting, that this is a um, joint project between uh, the states of New Jersey, Ohio, and South Carolina. And what you will see is that in Ohio and South Carolina, they've made progress on sampling restrooms. And <clears throat> you will see that they've we've gone and visited 0% of the restrooms that we've been assigned to visit in New Jersey. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, and it's not really our fault. Uh, it's the fault of the state. Uh, because we have a very Byzantine uh, home rule state, uh, what that means is that there is no state list of uh, food service establishments, that each uh, list is maintained by its own um, um, municipality. And in the case of uh, sparsely populated counties, it's the county public health office. But in densely populated counties, like the counties close to New York City, it's every individual municipality. And so what that means is if you want to develop a comprehensive list of restaurants in that particular county in New Jersey, you have to contact each and every municipality and fill out whatever freedom of information form they require um, in whatever form they require and get the information from them after perhaps repeated requests. Um, And so we've spent a year basically compiling a list of restaurants in some counties in New Jersey. So uh, we hope to get started on that uh, this fall and this winter, which because of course we're, we're moving into um, high norovirus season. It's, it's approaching the norovirus season. And so we hope to get out there. Actually, my graduate student, Hannah, uh, that you know because she went down and worked uh, in your lab for the summer. Um, she's actually spearheading that project. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Love Hannah's great. Um, and uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I, I, when I heard about this project last year at the uh, collaborators meeting, I was pretty excited about it because I think it's got a. Um, it's a data gap. I mean, no one really knows what the what the risk is of uh, of public. Uh, or of nor- uh, acquiring norovirus at a at a public restroom, but it's it doesn't surprise me that um, there would be states or places out there that would that you know like you're describing New Jersey where you just can't get a list. So you, you're going to have this list. It's going to take a year to get this list, and then it's going to be like the most valuable list ever. 
Well, but no, but it'll be out of date, and it's not for the whole state either. Yeah, true. For certain municipalities, but uh-huh. but I don't know. I mean, maybe it's more dangerous to be in the NBA. Uh, it probably is. Um, may, like, <laughs> I've, uh, there are other things I think that that happen when you're in the NBA. Like, you um, can start smoking crack. You can do. You know, there's lots of speaking of yes. Speaking of, speaking of smoking crack. Oh, my fine. Nothing except Canada. How about that mayor? Amazing. My my fine home city um, has uh, yes, uh, Rob Ford. Who, uh, I mean, everyone. Uh, I, I saw the news in Brazil, so you know, some international coverage of uh, of Rob Ford, who uh, the saga of this man uh, smoking crack or not smoking crack or showing up drunk to uh, uh, different events and then going into rants. He's he's just been uh, pure entertainment um, from from the time that he started, which I think for people that still live in Toronto, the friends that I have there, I think find it a bit of an embarrassment. Embarrassment and also a little bit entertaining, but yeah, yeah. Um, I, I enjoy uh, I enjoy the uh, Daily Show and Colbert coverage of uh, Mayor Rob Ford and his admission, and uh, and I, in fact everything Rob Ford related, I'm I, I pretty much find to be quite entertaining. Well, and I have to, I have to say that this is really, per- I mean, the fact that you heard about it in Brazil, I think, is an indication. I um, I don't, as much as I would love to only get my news from the Daily Show and the Colbert Report, I don't even do that. I get my news from Facebook and Twitter. Um, and people on Twitter were talking about this Bob Ford guy. And it's like, who is this guy? And then uh, I was lost for an hour. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just digging through the internet about Rob Ford. There's so much material. My my favorite post that I saw on Facebook was Rob Ford's crack smoking is like the seventh worst thing he's done <laughs> like there are six things worse than that uh that, he, that he's been part of from from a social program standpoint the crack smoking is like no big deal at all yeah, the and the one thing that i saw is there's a video of him it's not the video of him smoking crack but it's the video of him just going off on this drunken rant, yes. rant yeah um that's just uh, it's just like a train wreck you know you you but you can't look away i yeah um i uh, I'll, I'll see if we can dig this up for show notes, or maybe Andreas can can find it. But I saw something on Gawker today uh, of 39 pictures of Rob Ford in like ridiculous poses, uh, dressed up, making a weird face, which I just couldn't you know uh, look away from. Like I had to scroll through all 39 of them because um, he's he's pretty amazing. He, I mean, I don't know how how lost you got into it, but he had um, like donated a bunch of uh had had some conflict of interest issues with um using city um city of toronto letterhead to go after donations for the football team that he was coaching and and was up on like conflict of interest charges for that and somehow got out of you know basically was found that that wasn't a conflict i'm just looking at these pictures right now. it's incredible isn't it the, the gawker pictures are amazing <laughs> uh, so yeah rob ford good stuff good 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 hometown coverage. He, you know, if, if Chris Farley wasn't dead, uh, Chris <laughs> yep. Farley would make a great. Uh, he is dead, right? He is. He is. Yeah. Yeah. He would make a great Rob Ford. He would. <laughs> oh, Rob. Um, 
So, so we're uh, so we're. I'm, I'm, I need to not look at these pictures. <laughs> uh, oh, it, it's. I gotta stop. It's it's it, you can't you have to scroll. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll talk to uh, you know. I'll give me give me two minutes later. Yeah, you no no. I'll talk. You scroll through them. Turn your microphone off. It'll be. We'll, no no no. Okay. <laughs> um. So, so yeah. So that's. I think that's pretty much all we had in, in follow up. We haven't. I mean, we're 50 minutes into things, and I haven't. We haven't started the show. We haven't started the show, but that's what we do. Michelle told us not to ramble as much, but I don't think this is rambling. This is just catching up. Yeah, it's just catching up. <laughs> um, I'm tonight's uh, episode uh, f- on my side of things. I know you've uh, probably got some some nice bourbon. I'm I'm drinking a Miller Light, uh, just keeping it classy. Miller Light. Yeah, my, I know my my neighbor. So I was, I so so my hockey team. Uh, we like we like Miller Light and Bud Light. You know, it's it's guys that drink drink beer after hockey. Don't want a, a nice strong IPA all the time. So uh, that's what I happen to have on hand uh, from the last time that I bought beer for my for my team. And uh, I was out a couple of days ago or last week last weekend I guess uh, drinking a beer while while we're hanging out with our kids and they're playing in the street in a good way. Uh, and my neighbor sees my Miller Light and and says uh, he thought that my uh, Canadian citizenship would be revoked if Canadians knew that I was drinking Miller Lite. And I said, sometimes you just have to drink it. And he said, no, no, you don't. I'm with him. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty good answer. But anyway, that's what, uh, yeah, tonight's brought to you by uh, Miller Lite on my end of things. And I'm sure you've got a very nice bourbon. I am am finishing off the last of a bottle of Knob Creek. Hmm. Excellent. I had some Knob Creek in an old-fashioned. You know, I've tried to learn to like an old fashioned and I I just I can't it's just I haven't had a good enough one yet. I, I Who ha- likes an old fashioned? Leanne uh Jacus likes an old fashioned. I you know, I I knew that. Um I, I don't know if you told she's me a classy that. Lady. Yeah, she is a classy lady. She <laughs> never see her drinking a Miller like No, no, she she'd be she I ho- hopefully she's not listening to this cuz she won't don't mention this when we see her on Tuesday. Ah. <laughs> uh, so, um, we should probably jump into what we normally do, which is talk about food safety stuff uh, more. I mean, we have talked a little bit, but, uh, but what we, what we always do, at least for the last, I don't know, four episodes is we talk about the history of IAFP and the history of food microbiology. And this is replaces our old segment of bug trivia. Um, and uh, we note, or you noted, in our uh, in our show notes that uh, last episode we actually skipped the 1940s. We went straight into the 50s. So we're going to do the 1940s right now, and I'm going to do the um, history of IAFP uh, intro. So here we go. <clears throat> history of IAFP. <laughs> Rock on. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, this particular um, segment is was written by uh, Scott Burnett, who I believe is a listener of the podcast, or at least he used to be. Um, uh, <laughs> he's until, he's uh, since stopped since we talked. Too rambly. And uh, Michelle Daniluk, who, who uh, I don't think listens anymore because uh, we don't talk enough about urine. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, or too much or something that okay. might bring scott back so uh <laughs> all right so uh and there's there's a, a lot of information here um it is uh five pages long so i won't i won't do all of it but i will do a, a bit of it um so 
uh, uh, developments in, and I'll, I'll read. Uh, I'll read from uh, from the the text, and then uh, maybe you can offer a commentary or, or a counterpoint. Um, developments in food protection during the 1940s were largely shaped by the conditions of World War II uh, during the first half of the decade. Troops required a consistent and safe food supply that met quality standards set in the military. Food distribution channels lengthened to provide supply to troops, driving the need for products with increased shelf life. Uh, new products manufactured under centralized production emerged to meet demands, and then, and with them, a new host of microbiological challenges. Energy consumption was scrutinized, if not controlled, and the availability of raw materials used in processing equipment was scarce. The industry responded by tightening and standardizing sanitation and quality control programs. J.H. Schrader, in his 1944 review of scientific advances within the dairy industry, summarized the climate of the day, and I quote, the exigencies of the times are responsible for two beneficial movements, namely better care of equipment and a movement towards simplification of our regulatory procedure. The first means greater skill and personal training are necessary to handle properly a plant that is difficulty that that is difficulty replaceable. I think there's a typo there. Um, uh, the second reveals a trend towards placing more emphasis on the quality of milk itself and less on its environmental setting. And <clears throat> I will stop there, but I will say um, that uh, as much as hippies like you love to hate the Army, um, uh, the, the Army, especially the folks at Natick Labs, have been responsible for a tremendous amount of like really good food safety research. Um, they've funded research in, in my lab um, more recently, but in, in many labs over the years. And in fact, if you think about it, some of the the, the needs that um, servicemen and women uh, face when traveling around the world are sort of amplified versions of what the rest of us need in our daily lives. And so some of the cutting edge issues that the army has to deal with to basically feed uh, its soldiers are are amplified versions of what the, we, the industry needs to do to feed the, the general public. And so uh, a lot of our advances in food technology have definitely come from uh, research done by the army and, and funded by the army. So uh, any anyway, interesting uh, interesting um, um, note about the 1940s. I'd never really thought about that. That in many ways probably was the start of uh, a lot of the the current um, uh, direction in terms of food safety and food safety innovation. Yeah, I've got I got two things that I want to add to that. Is the the army the U.S. Army um, was the the first home of uh, Pete Snyder as well. Um, his um, first spot uh, after uh, leaving the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology was to work for the U.S. Army and do R&D work. Um, and this is just pulled from one of his bios, but he developed uh, radiation sterilized food and army field feeding systems. And so, I mean, um, as much as I am a hippie, I'm, I wouldn't say that I hate the army. Uh, and I definitely don't don't hate Pete Snyder. Uh <laughs> And, um, but the, the other thing is, I mean, if you look back in, into the history of, of food and food technology, um, you know, the, the, you know, the 1940s wasn't the first time that we had significant, uh, technical, technological advances around food microbiology. I mean, you can go back right to, um, uh, Napoleon's armies and, and the development of, uh, of canning. Good point, Nicholas Appert. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Nicholas Appert. Yeah, uh, the I believe the title of his winning um, 
submission to this competition that uh, Napoleon put together was uh, um, uh, you know, food in jars. Like it was something very simple <laughs> that described it. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, uh, absolutely uh, uh, the mil- military over time has been a, a, a big driver of food technology. So thanks for thanks to Scott and Michelle for pulling together uh, that chapter. Um, and, uh, you know, some, some interesting stuff. And again, those are all available in a special, uh, uh, 100 year, um, anniversary, um, uh, not episode, um, edition of food protection trends, uh, that happened in 2012. Yep. And we'll, and uh, it's available free on the web and we'll link to it in show notes. Absolutely. So Don, I want to talk about roadkill. You know, this harkens back to that episode, that uh, famous episode, uh, oh, so many episodes ago, whose number I don't remember. But yes, let's talk about Roadkill, Ben. Let's talk about Roadkill, because I've gone through a year of being referred to as Dr. Roadkill um, in a couple of places. Excellent. Yeah, it was it was good. I, I enjoyed this. I, I like this Roadkill discussion. This is the kind of stuff that I, I, I really like. So um, the reason why we're going to talk about this is uh, earlier this week, uh, the Montana Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks um, it has uh, said that they're going to create an online uh, permitting system so people can legally salvage uh, animals um, that were killed on the highway. And uh, this is from a Food Safety News uh, uh article uh, from November 7th. Uh, article says the new permitting system should be in place by the end of the month. And the quote from uh, Deputy Chief of Law Enforcement Mike Korn, the reason why we're going through an electronic system is so we can track it, be able to accurately see to the degree that it's being utilized, and watch for abuses. Um, we talked a little bit about this uh, in, in that very famous uh, episode. And uh, Carl Custer uh, also did a little piece of follow-up on, he mentioned uh, uh, on an occasion uh, hitting a deer and then informing someone at a park about it and that uh, his uh, words were that the park, he could almost see the park ranger salivate uh, as he told him where the deer was. Um, but, I mean, this th- this kind of has erupted into another big discussion area and I'm not sure really why. I mean, there's, there, there's definitely, um, I don't know why it's so polarizing, Don, do you know why, why people have, have such a big problem with this? I mean, roadkill. Yeah. Like we had, we had it, we, we talked about the risks and, and, and certain things. And I, I fall on the side of, um, you know, you, you may not know, but if you, if you did, if you were the one who hit the, the deer, um, it's, it's really not all that different from shooting a deer because you also don't know the, uh, you know, the, the health of an animal once you shoot it. Um, I think that's, that's probably, that's probably true. Um, so I, I guess why it got polarizing is the stuff that I saw afterwards was, um, more about, you know, this is unsafe, uh, because there aren't a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of information about it. And, uh, because of that, um, we shouldn't create sort of a two tiered, uh, system for food. And the, the argument being that roadkill, uh, and other game that's, that's found, through this system, and, and one of the pushes in Montana was to be able to 
um, use that food uh, in uh, food pantries and, and other donation settings. So Fred Pritzker, who's uh, an attorney in Minnesota, and we've mentioned Fred a, a few times, uh, uh, a, um, very similar to, to Bill Marler on uh, his area of business. And he was quoted in uh, the American Bar Association Journal uh, about this earlier this week, and I just picked up a press release from, from their website. And he said, eating an animal killed by blunt force trauma with no information about its pre-existing health or provenance and with no information on how long it's been dead or the conditions in which it's been held since death is a prescription from danger, uh, he says, referring to what he calls ubiquitous pathogens, including E. coli, Listeria, and Salmonella. Uh, the longer one waits to dress and safely store once fresh meat, the unhealthier it becomes. And and to his his comments, I I mean it's it's hard to argue with with it, but he puts up sort of this straw man argument where it's he, he kind of loads this with well if you don't know how long it's been dead and you don't know the conditions that it's been that it was killed under uh, and how you know what the temperature was then it's then it's dangerous. But that's not what this law is about and what this permitting system is about. It's actually about. Um, those instances often where you do know um, it's just that up until now in Montana, if you hit a deer or you hit elk or a moose, um, it was illegal to take that in, in, and put it into food um, and, and it would just sit there and rot. So it's, so it's actually not, I mean, I guess my, my problem with, with the, the polarization of this issue is it's, it's not what the other side of the argument is, is about because it, 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 or at least the other side of the, the discussion, what, what those individuals are talking about. It's, it's actually about in those cases where you know how it was killed. Right. And I think he's setting up a bit of a straw man. I mean, I'm not sure how much Mr. Pritzker knows about how animals today are slaughtered. But for large animals, it basically does involve blood force trauma. Absolutely. Yes. Right? I yes. Mean, you you stun <laughs> right? Blood force trauma. And then and then you cut their uh, you cut their uh, jugular. So I mean it's a bit it's a bit inflammatory and it's a bit of a straw man. And and yeah, and I got the same impression. I mean when I read the, the food safety news article, it seemed like kind of sensible to me. I mean, you've killed this animal, unfortunately, right? I mean, hopefully people aren't driving around on purpose trying to hit these animals, right? But you kill the animal and you don't want to waste it. And and yeah, and you're right. You you know exactly what. It's not like people. I mean, my God, it's not like people are driving around looking for dead animals by the side of the road. It's it's dealing with what happens when you kill an animal and you know exactly when it was killed it was killed just you know when you when you inadvertently struck it in the road right yeah absolutely and that you know that that's the thing is i think when you've got i, I think this is also a case of of people who don't live in those communities sort of having comment on what the state of both hunger and the culture is <laughs> mm -hmm. um, there. You know, we're, we're talking about the straight out of the food safety news article. Uh, one of the comments from corn, the, the guy that I mentioned before said, we just turned over five or six elk here in town. Um, we don't process it. They have to handle it. But I mean, the thought of, I don't think there are five or six elk in the state of North Carolina. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I don't think we we're living in the same kind of world. And, and who are we to, to kind of say, ah, 
ah, that's, you know, th that's not, uh, that food's not safe because uh, those absolutes are the, are, are, you know, if there are, are common themes to the podcast, it's that there aren't absolutes. It's what, what is it, Don? It depends. And, depends and it's complicated. And it's complicated. Exactly. And, and while I'm sure there are probably five or six elk in the state of many, uh, Minnesota where, where Mr. Pritzker apparently is located, they're probably not in Minneapolis, and Mr. Pritzker probably makes a pretty good living as an attorney and probably doesn't have to worry about having enough food to eat. So I think it's a little bit hypocritical. I, I agree. I, I think – I mean Pritzker brings up something here. Um, again, the, the, the whole straw man situation. It, the, uh, this law does not say that if you're poor and dependent on food banks that um, you, you should expect a lower level of food safety. Um, it doesn't say that, but but that's a point that that's well taken. I mean, it, it, we should have um, uh, volunteers at food banks that are knowledgeable about food safety, both from the uh, accepting incoming products uh, to handling uh, food safety. You're handling um, any of the foods there in, in a safe manner, but that has nothing to do with whether it's roadkill or not. I mean, it's it's a uh, it, it's the you know the the concept of having a good food safety culture there, um, and, and sort of knowing what those risks are. But it's not you know to to, to sort of capitalize on on this this Montana rule. I just thought was was quite unfair and, and a bit misguided. And I don't want to I don't want to attack. I've never met Fred, but um, I just thought this was not uh, not not something that I agreed with. No, and, and a couple of comments. One is, it, for some reason, this made me flash back to my days as a graduate student at Georgia. And one of the things that we did to raise money for the, for the, the uh, food science club was we, did, uh, we made sausage and we sold it. And, uh, but we didn't sell all of it. We had some left at the end uh, that, for whatever reason, didn't get sold. And so we took it to a local food bank. And I still remember bringing this frozen sausage in and the guy at the food bank asking me about it and I explained that we made it at the you know at the at, for our sale and it, it didn't sell and uh and he was filling out a form and and after he queried me asked me a few questions he wrote down on the form you know where it said status of food he wrote down eatable now I I don't know if he misspelled edible or whether he was just characterizing the food as eatable but he took the food and and we we were happy to have it go to you know to the food bank where it would feed somebody so um, and the other thing that I have to say about Pritzker is I'm looking at his uh, web page, and if you scroll down to the bottom, the last uh, five words on the page is, this page is attorney advertising. Ah, <laughs> there you go. That must be uh, something you have to do if you're, uh, if you're advertising as an attorney in Minnesota. Minnesota, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, cool. Um, so the other... Uh, well, there's lots of other things that uh, that I wanted to talk about, but there was one other, I think, big thing that popped up uh, in the last three weeks that, that we haven't really had a chance to talk about. It was a big thing, at least in the, the wheels of social media, um, and well, also where I get a lot of my news, and it was this um, FDA risk profile of uh, dried spices and uh, risk profile of pathogen and filth in spices. Um, 
and uh, the thing that that I kind of noticed, uh, you know, this this risk profile uh, came out of um, uh, some work, and I, I think that our friend Mickey was was involved as one of the the co-authors on this potentially, because mm-hmm. um, he had uh, written a. A, a paper looking at spices uh, and illnesses and spices uh, about a year ago or maybe eight, mm-hmm. eight months ago. Um, so, uh, you know, this this uh, FDA. I don't know what a risk profile is. I guess is the first thing. So I want you to enlighten me on that. That's my that's question number one. And um, from what I read of the, of the report, it sort of characterizes a couple of things. One is um, pathogens, and the second is. Um, Things that are not spices that FDA determines or calls, characterizes as filth, things like um, insects, insect parts, dust, rocks, uh, and, and other things like that. And so uh, the pathogen side of things, I think, was actually downplayed a little bit. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I, I looked at it as, hey, there's a bunch of spices that have salmonella, um, which isn't surprising based on, you know, the stuff that you and I talk about all the time. Uh, but the um, on my Facebook friend feed for non-food safety people, the, their, this did make a, uh, a a dent into their um, into their posts and statuses. Uh, it had only to do with that yuck factor of uh, dirty spices that have insect parts in it. So, huh. yeah, which was weird. And and I mean, so there there were some cool quotes um, in the. Um, in the New York Times about it, uh, Jane Van Doren, uh, who's an official at FDA, said um, when asked about what this uh, what this profile means, she said it means, quote, hey, you haven't solved the problems, uh, speaking to the spice um, industry, and it's a wake-up call to, to spice producers. And uh, in that same article, uh, John Halligan, who's the spokesman for the American Spice Trade Association, said that he hadn't seen the report. Uh, so he couldn't comment on it, uh, but spice manufacturers have argued in the past that food manufacturers often treat imported spi- spices before marketing them. So FDA findings of contamination levels and its import screening program do not mean that spices sold to com- consumers are dangerous. Well, so, that's a that's a good answer. The fact that he hasn't read it yet is a little bit irritating. It was I mean, awful. This guy worked for the Spice Association, right? Don't you think he'd be following everything that the FDA did? Um, Yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I mean, kudos to FDA for doing this. Um, actually, I'm looking at the bottom of the FDA website that you that we'll link to in show notes that you put in in our notes. And there's actually four uh, different articles. I didn't realize they had published so many, but basically four different peer-reviewed publications that all appeared in 2013. And actually, uh, Jane uh, is the lead author on uh, three of them. And uh, so, you know, good, good for her um, for 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 that. And Mickey is the uh, is a co-author on at least one of them, I see. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, FDA is going after spices and, and I think they should. I mean, if you're working down the list of products that have pathogens in it uh, spices are certainly known to and i appreciate the spices space trade association's perspective on that and certainly the big players do irradiate and do have quality control programs in place uh, but that doesn't mean that all spices are safe and if there's i mean gosh you know, if there's one thing that people in the food industry should have learned by now is if you sell spices and somebody else sells spices and you're doing a good job and somebody else is not doing a good job and they cause an outbreak, uh, guess what? Your sales might be impacted by that. So maybe you ought to pay attention. So, 
Um, yeah. yeah, there's lots of fallout. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and people don't people don't care. Like all they hear is, "Oh, black pepper has poop in it," or 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 salmonella, or whatever, and they don't. They don't pay attention to well. It's the, from this company, right? So I don't know. The they, the spice industry ought to get on board and and get out ahead of this thing. Yeah, I I mean, if I was them, I mean, I, uh, uh, you know, not uh, saying anything about the well, we haven't read it. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's a, a horrible answer. And even if they had just got got it, I mean, obviously, um, you know, New York Times had it in, in enough. Uh, had it enough in advance to write an article about it. Um, they should have been able to skim through and 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 know, as as you point out, that there have been these four papers that FDA has put out. Um, so it would be probably a good idea to figure out what's in those and, and have some comments around that. But what I would do, I mean, based on this whole um, social media yuck factor situation, I would totally steer it away from that. And in fact, I would say stuff like, um, yeah, there there are allowable limits for uh, you know for non-spice food debris that that FDA has set, and and those have been set for very practical reasons because of the type of product that uh, that we're um, that we're trading that we're that we're producing or importing and, and distributing, um, and and sort of go into some of those details on well how how it's harvested and how it's dried and. Um, that yeah, we may get cer- certain things in there, and we do our best to screen those those out. Um, but but those aren't the things that, that that really make people sick. What really makes people sick are the pathogens, and that's why we do all these other steps to reduce risk. And I think that's that's been missing. I mean, this the story kind of went away, um, at least from quoting anybody from the spice uh, association or spice producers it really just went into um you know fda says that there's a bunch of stuff in your spices um you know and uh in in its gross stuff but but i mean i would i would totally steer it away from that and i mean this is this is the same kind of strategy that i would take in in many of these situations that you see um it, just from a risk communication standpoint is to to talk to people about what the risks are and what you're doing to manage them and you better have something in place to manage those risks and they do i mean that's the that's the thing but but the way that that quote came across was very well trust us you know, yeah which is which is nonsense i mean again to, to our friend doug's point about so much of this if you if you have a good food safety program talk about it exactly i mean this i know i know the spice industry is doing this stuff tell us what you're doing tell us what the what the spice trade is association members are doing to make spices safe i mean they're doing tons of stuff why not talk about it it's it's maddening because it's the same thing every time Mm -hmm. (laughs) um speaking speaking of which and just to to jump out of spices we we haven't really talked too much about foster farms we did a little bit in the last um in episode 50 but since that episode um foster farms uh did a couple of things. They came out with um, full page ads in a, in a couple major newspapers, especially in LA Times and major California newspapers where they're where they're based. Um, and then did something, uh, you know, put out this this sort of big large press release about the 23 things that they're doing to change the food safety. Um, you know how they're addressing food safety at um, uh, at Foster Farms, and I don't know if if you happen to have a chance to catch this. I tweeted about it a couple of weeks ago, and this is another great example of uh, of someone 
just not getting it right because in their 23 steps or the 23 things that, you know, that's what the headline is. They have 15 bullet points and it's just a math issue. I think at that point where we're really, they don't have 23 things. And in fact, in those 15 bullet points, a couple of them are just facts. They're not anything to do with the strategy. And so I just couldn't understand it. Like I just, I couldn't follow. <laughs> it's like, huh? 23. Let yeah. me count. It's like it's like somebody told them that the key to a, a good blog post is to have a number in the title. Yeah. Then they never like check the number. It yeah, and that really and even when they did have some number, it's really like they have twelve things that they say they're they're doing. But but again, to to Doug's point and this common theme that comes up throughout this entire podcast is they don't ever really say what it is they're doing. They just say we're doing more, and and that's the, that's just frustrating and it gets maddening after a while. So, so anyway, it's just, I just, and obviously it didn't get much traction because I just Googled Foster Farms 23 things and I don't, (laughs) I don't see anything. I'll have to find, I, it it happened, you know, a while ago, so long ago. And and I tweeted at them saying, I, I don't, I only see 15 here and they never got back to me. Of course not because their social media strategy is not really to have a social media strategy. It's to use Twitter and Facebook to promote their brand. Yeah, as a brochure. Uh, um, well, spe- speaking of which, you put in a nice article on why are so many social media managers dip S's. <laughs> yes, I, I, this is not really related to uh, to food safety, but but yeah, it's it's a very nice. Uh, uh, a very nice article that that I that I saw. Actually, this was uh, yeah. This is uh, this is from our uh, our, our good friend uh, John Gruber, and by our good friend, I mean I don't know him. <laughs> yes, we talk about him, but 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 I have to say, Merlin introduced him to the waitress at the place we were eating steak as our friend John Gruber. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna claim that. Yeah, that's good. Um, so uh, yeah, so let me let me read to uh, our listeners from the Daring Fireball post, um, and this is this is just one of uh, John's link posts. So there's there's no there's no comment except just his uh, title, which I guess is the title of the original article. Um, uh, Today, many of the social media managers at large, important companies are, by contrast, not very smart admin. <laughs> Say that they regularly underestimate their customers' intelligence would be a great understatement. They seem to believe their customers have the brain power of a baked potato. I've collected eight recent social media posts by large companies. Most of these updates are from the last month. To try to pick the objectively stupidest one would not be easy. It's like trying to pick your favorite Rob Ford photo. Uh, you can go ahead and give it a try, though. And it's just, it, again, it's just a, some examples from um, uh, uh, Mark Duffy of of these, you know, just, just bozo, bozo things. Um, like there's one from uh, KLM Middle East, the um, KLM, the airline company, uh, can, uh, can, and it's uh, can you guess where we are? The last Olympics was hosted in this city. Blank O blank D blank N. We'll uncover a letter after every twenty three likes, and then they they're all like this. I mean, it's just like um, like pandering for for people to like them and retweet them, and it's just uh, it's they just don't get it. And yeah, my favorite one was. If we get 50 or 500 likes, we're going to throw this pumpkin. <laughs> oh, oh, good. Yeah. Please, uh, please do. Yeah. Please do throw yeah. the pumpkin. Five, if this, yeah. This post gets 5,000 likes. We'll smash this pumpkin. 
Oh, okay. Okay, good. Weird. It's it's weird. Why Don, why are people so dumb? Um You know, I, I don't I don't know. I think I, I really think it's because they don't get social media. Is it because they're not on it? Like you would think that a I social think, media, so yeah, like that. It, that's got to be part of it. It's that that they're just not. They, they don't see how this all explodes, and it's someone who who's been given this title. I don't know. I I, I shouldn't judge because it's not like I'm phenomenal at it. I just think that I watch it better than than they do. Like I, you can kind of see where these things are going to go and what's going to backfire and um and, and that kind of thing. Um. I just don't. I don't know. It, yeah, you know, I um, I heard a recent uh, presentation um, at actually at the McDonald's uh, Food Safety Advisory Council from Joan Mickey Schenzer, who's at ConAgra, and Joan was in it. She's not on the the Food Safety Advisory uh, Council, but she is. Um, she's a, a executive with ConAgra, and uh, she talked a little bit about their social media strategy. And basically, ConAgra's social media strategy was to find. A bunch of employees that are on social media and say, hey, look, we authorize you to go be on social media on behalf of ConAgra. So go ahead and engage. And do what you do. Right? Yeah. Do, do, yeah. Just do what you do and talk about ConAgra and talk about what we do and, and, you know, just go ahead and engage with no real restrictions. I don't know if they get extra pay for doing this, but but they're just empowered to do it. And it seems like a much – and I, I, I looked it up few of the tweets and i wasn't like really super impressed but on the other hand that's got to be a much better strategy than you know for every 50 likes we'll do something i mean you know yeah. you know who knows maybe it works maybe that maybe that thing works i don't know um i've had a chance since we talked about this to find the foster farms document <laughs> Not to harp on them too much, but I wanted to I, – I just – for the ridiculousness of it, if one of their 23 or 23 equals 15 strategies is this. Since salmonella is a normal inhabitant of, of the poultry digestive system, the procedures used to reduce the amount of salmonella in poultry must begin before the chicks are even born. That's it. I'm not – there's no – I didn't cut out there. That is huh. the strategy. Huh? Like what, Ben? Ben, I, I, something doesn't seem right to me. That that doesn't seem like a strategy. <laughs> Does it? Doesn't it seems that like a fact? That's a fact. Um, we there's another one. We have always conducted a four to six hour, depending on the size of the facility, sanitation process in our production facilities prior to the beginning of each shift. In fact, we cannot restart production without USDA certification of cleanliness. Okay. What? Ah, Don. I'm, um, I'm done. I can't. I. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I, and, <laughs> yeah. And and this thing about salmonella as a normal inhabitant. It's like, okay, but but clearly, like something is up. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. I understand that that people that chicken has salmonella and people get sick from chicken, but something is up with Foster Farms, right? I mean, something has to be up because like. Stuff like this doesn't pop up on CDC's radar for no reason. Yes. Um, and, and here's a, 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 a fun one on that. One of their points is all Foster Farms breeder hens have been vaccinated against Salmonella Heidelberg since 2006 as part of a health program designed to stimulate the Burns immune system to reduce the availability of Salmonella to colonize the hen. 
So, so something's up <laughs> because they're in fact using Heidelberg vaccination, and but their chickens have Heidelberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be a uh, um, a we we call a uh, oops an oops and is it right? is that that's a technical term yeah. that we that we use in the industry. It is. Oh, man. Uh, anyway, there it was just uh, like it was a little bit maddening to see, but but it could have been it could have been fixed. Like they could they could just do so much better. But they they must be afraid of something, and maybe maybe we're to. I don't know. We, we don't. We we're not the individuals that that have money on the line, and maybe they're much better at making money than we do, we are. Oh, or something. they're much better at making money, but clearly <laughs> don't understand why, how, yeah, social media. Oh gosh. Um, I, yeah, I, I with you've given me enough keywords that I've been able to hone in on this article, which I have to say, as the version I found on the web is a PDF. It is. Yes, that's which the one. Every consumer knows is the optimal form for viewing. Yep, very easy um, to download. And yeah, you're right. These are 23 new control measures, and the first bullet point is. Uh, Salmonella is a normal poultry <laughs> digestive system. Uh, okay, good. Well, it makes me feel better that I'm not crazy, no. or like about this. Um, and I actually had to I had to count it like four times before. Make sure, they wasn't yeah. twenty three. Yeah, I was like, well, where's the twenty? And then I I thought, oh, maybe they're talking about the stuff that they have early on, the performance in the first process and the second process. I'm like, nope, that's the same stuff. It's the same thing. Yeah. Anyway, um, so so smarten up. They do apologize. Well, that's nice. Foster Farms truly regrets any illness associated with our products. That's good. That's a good step. Our brand was built on trust, and now it's our responsibility to earn it back. Yeah, by by miscounting. <laughs> we plan to do so by establishing a gold standard for food safety across our facilities. A gold standard, Ben. Yep. Not a silver standard. No. Not a bronze standard. Why not platinum? Why not diamond? Please. We're not made of money. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. This is... The the entire company is committed to a future that makes the safety of our products and the satisfaction of our customers central to everything we do. Before, it wasn't that important. No. We're we're in now. It really is. Yep. We've already implemented 23 new control measures. <laughs> Number one being salmonella is normal. <laughs> Done. Uh, oh, damn it. Oh, Don. Don. You know, they're, they're USDA FSIS inspected. They are. And testing indicates that their enhancements are working. <sighs> and their chicken is becoming even safer than before. <laughs> Before, is that before it led to the illnesses? Yeah, before it led to the illnesses. Now it's safer than that. Safer than that. Well, that's good. Uh, yep, yep, yep. Um, so I have one more thing to to talk about. Well, I have two more things. Two little things. Okay. One one is you uh, you mentioned um, this issue around spices and how an outbreak affects the entire industry and and we've seen that before in lots of cases. Um, you know the the one. I, well, I in in my world of produce experience, I think the most the biggest one. Um, Historically, was this uh, cyclospore outbreak or a couple of cyclospore outbreaks that happened in '96 and '97 that were initially um, uh, linked to 
uh, strawberries because it was a uh, fruit salad products yep. and California strawberries and that whole industry got decimated. Uh, and then uh, the uh, pathogen was was then uh, recovered from from some water in Guatemala and it was associated with raspberries and it was a whole big thing. But that that like brought down an industry and they weren't even part of it. And then we saw a similar thing happen with spinach in 2006 where. Um, FDA, and in, in, you know, in my opinion, rightly so, said we don't know. We just know people are getting sick from spinach. It's coming from bag spinach, so don't eat it because we don't want any more people getting sick from it. And that affected, you know, producers in Canada and New Jersey, and and had, was ultimately linked to um, uh, Earthbound Farms and a dual process and a ranch in um, in California or four ranches, I guess, in California. And then similar thing happened in tomatoes um, or to the tomato Florida tomato industry that. Uh, uh, estimates and, in fact, has sued um, the regulatory world, the government, uh, for damages uh, because they lost, I think it was like $240 million or $220 million after um, they were um, nailed with uh, being associated with this uh, Salmonella St. Paul outbreak in 2008. So, um, yet again, and the spice thing made me think of this, is uh, not you know, to the sort of national same extent, but, um, the last year had this, uh, peanut butter outbreak associated with, or salmonella outbreak associated with peanut butter from Sunland, um, uh, peanut processors and was sold through Trader Joe's and, uh, article that I picked up this week, uh, said, uh, the New Mexico peanut butter plant, uh, which was involved in this nationwide outbreak, uh, declared Chapter 7 bankruptcy earlier in October. And now the growers in eastern New Mexico and West Texas, peanut growers that sold to this plant, um, who planted crops thinking that they were going to be able to sell this year to Sunland, uh, are, are out millions of dollars because they can't sell their peanuts anywhere. And so uh, court documents show that the plant had been preparing for the possibility of bankruptcy for months, but didn't tell the the producers that uh you know that they were going to file for bankruptcy and um there's two two things on this and you know obviously the fallout goes beyond sunland it's the suppliers it's the rest of the industry but but i kind of look at um i, I kind of look at it as the producers probably should have known you know, it's it, I, th this may just be posturing in this article and, and maybe, um, you know, going through legal channels to do this in, in the right way. But, you know, just historically looking at places that have had big outbreaks, they often don't do very well uh, afterwards, especially if, if they don't have 23 um, steps on how to. Uh, regain trust in their market. If they only have 15, they don't always do so well. And I don't know how many Sunland had, but um, but the the producers probably should have should have been able to to forecast this a little bit um, uh, out there. So I don't. I mean, I I think I feel I feel bad for that industry that they're um, they were part of this, but their buyer had a problem and they probably could have forecast this a little bit before. Now, what do you do if you're a peanut grower in New Mexico or West Texas? It's not like you can go ahead and change exactly what you do, but you may want to spend some time trying to find another market uh, in advance, thinking that you may not be able to sell it to the person you used to sell it to. So. Yeah, well, and what what's not clear to me is was Sunland in financial trouble even before the outbreak? It, yeah, I mean, it could it could be that they uh, that they were. Um, yeah. 
it's po- you know it's possible that um, you know this was a problem for them before, and we, we've seen that in other outbreaks. Um, was it the Chichis and financial problems before they uh, were linked to the green onion hepatitis A uh, outbreak a few years ago? So yeah, because I mean you know food, and there was a New Jersey meat processor that had an E. coli outbreak, same same sort of thing. I mean food safety is hard and it, it takes effort, and if you're already like resource strapped and you don't have time to you know, focus on the important things. Food safety is going to be, I think, one of the first things to go. But yeah, I feel, I don't know. I, I, I feel, I feel bad for these peanut farmers. I guess I'm not taking as hard a line as you. I, I feel bad for them that they uh, put their trust in Sunland and then Sunland kind of screwed them over. Yeah. I mean, I, I see, I see it. Um, but yeah. yeah, we don't have to agree on everything. Do we, Don? No, we don't. <laughs> You're just a cold, heartless uh, man. I am sometimes. <laughs> a, hippie, a hippie that hates the the army, cold, heartless man. <laughs> um, the the last thing that I wanted to just talk about was highlighting something that I think is really, really odd and and interesting, and sort of shows this intersection between politics and trade and food safety and um there's something um uh, around how catfish are regulated in the u.s catfish um production and processing and so for for the listeners that don't know this and and aren't based in the u.s or dealing with u.s regulatory realm um for the most part usda regulates meat and poultry and fda regulates everything else now if there's a mixed seafood including seafood yeah yeah including seafood so meat and poultry is not not a seafood and um and so if there's a mixed dish you know you got a pizza the cheese pizza would be uh fda but a pepperoni pizza would be usda fsis but catfish move from uh fda to usda fsis in 2008 and it did so for import or for export reasons. Uh, basically, um, there was a perception or, or at least a, um, the, the story goes that wherever catfish producers wanted to export to, um, USDA was the more respected regulator compared to, to FDA. And, uh, so they, they successfully, the industry successfully lobbied Congress, um, to move the inspection as part of the farm bill, I believe it was, and um, and put them under um, USDA jurisdiction. And I just think it's like it, it's one of these sort of fascinating situations where it's got very little to do with food safety, um, but it has to do with the the perception of the regulatory body that is even within the same country. And, um, and, and it, it, you know, it, it all came down to, to being able to move it because of, because of politics. So anyway, this, this is popped back up because there is, uh, a move afoot to, to potentially, um, move catfish back to, to FDA because of, uh, another sort of political, uh, situation. So there's, uh, um, uh, a comment, uh, from, uh, session leads Senator, uh, here's the, the articles about, um, uh, a senator who was uh, supporting this fair trade rule for catfish, and his quote, and I'll have to pull up who it was, but he basically says, 
I'm going to fight for these jobs. Our catfish farmers should not be unfairly disadvantaged by foreign imports that skirt the rules. It's only right that foreign catfish producers comply with health and safety standards. All Americans can benefit when we defend the legitimate interests of American workers in the world stage. I mean, um, his his argument is, uh, and actually it goes both ways, both import and export. It was the fact that um, by moving catfish to uh, USDA, they also could block imports of catfish for um, uh, equivalent inspection uh, regimes. Um, and so it just, you know, it's, it's one of these things, I don't know if you, you know, how much you followed this, but it's kind of a, uh, kind of this crazy situation where this has moved and, um, and, and food safety is not always about public health. <laughs> no, no. I mean, and yeah, so I, I have followed this a little bit. Um, uh, Lisa Wedig, who used to work for uh, NFPA before it became grocery manufacturers, now works for, um, oh, I forget the, I want to say National Marine Fisheries, but it's, it's, a, it's, not, it's a trade association that, that is uh, for the, you know, the, the, the fisheries industry. But, but there was a USDA risk assessment um, done to compare domestic and imported catfish and uh, basically was a, a whole lot of nonsense, near as I could tell. From, <laughs> that's my technical opinion. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I feel like kind of like the U.S. catfish industry has kind of played games here because they felt like – and will uh, – there's a pretty good – Pretty good Washington Post article from um, uh, 2000 or 2010 uh, called "Expecting Something Fishy," which talks about uh, how the U.S. catfish industry wanted. To, and apologies to any U.S. catfish uh, industry people who are listeners to the podcast. Please, please write us and tell us how we're wrong. Um, but um, talking about how, uh, basically, for political reasons, I mean, as I understand the story. They, they felt like uh, they didn't want these Vietnamese imports impacting their business, and they felt like if they made the food, the, the food safety, and I'm using uh, my, my uh, air quotes there, uh, Richard Fingers, um, if they made the food safety standards higher, that the Vietnamese catfish wouldn't fare as well, and that would protect, uh, you know, catfish, you know, protect the safety of the American catfish or whatever. Um, <clears throat> And I, I'm pretty sure it didn't work out so well for them. Um, <laughs> and so now they're like, oh, well, yeah, we want to be back in FDA. So I don't know. The whole the whole thing is just a whole lie. It's, I mean, food safety is too important to play. I mean, I understand that, you, that people are going to play politics with it. In fact, I'm in the middle of... Uh, being an industry shill in a lawsuit where I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hired to represent one particular side, and so I am, I guess, playing politics, or I am, I am looking at it from a, one particular perspective because that's the job that I've been hired to do. Um, but, but I kind of feel like the the if the U.S. catfish industry gets whatever's coming to them for wanting to, you know, screw around with this and move catfish to USDA, and then now they want to move it back to FDA. So it's like, yeah, whatever. I mean, I. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I want I want to be able to eat safe catfish. Should I choose to eat catfish? Right. Yeah. And and I don't want to be messing around with who regulates what just for the benefit of uh, of trade. Right. Exactly. Well, and see, and yeah, we have a whole world trader uh, uh, world trade organization, and we have Codex Elementarius, and we have we we have you know very smart people that are doing their very best to ensure that we have fair trade standards and you know i mean i i feel for the us catfish farmers i want them to be able to earn a living but at the same time i feel for the vietnamese catfish farmers that want to be able to earn a living as well so you know and i don't like catfish all 
<laughs> no, me either. I mean, that's the yeah. I, full disclosure, I'm not a catfish fan. You know, yeah. I there's a. I wish I could remember the place and Wendy, uh, Wendy Wade White, our friend that used to live in Georgia, and maybe Michelle Daniluk would know as well. There's a great place that you can get catfish in Athens, Georgia, that where we had catfish and hush puppies and all of that. And, you know, basically if it's fresh enough and it's fried enough, I love catfish. But <laughs> I am, I'm mostly a fan of the saltwater fish. I have to say when it comes to fish, I discriminate. I prefer the saltwater fish to the freshwater fish. And I've never been a huge fan of, uh, of catfish, but good, good, fresh catfish that doesn't taste like the mud of the river bottom where it lives. Uh, I like that, but Yeah. But, you know, I mean, you got to fry it. And at that point, there's probably other health risks. Well, there'll be the trans fats, Don. You got the trans. <laughs> second heart disease, but sure. Yeah, you got you got the uh, you got FDA banned those you know, this week. So Did they? They yeah, banned them? They banned them. No more trans fats. safer already. Yeah, it's banned. It's banned. <laughs> <laughs> no more, no more trans, transies. I think that's what, that's what they call them. <laughs> oh, it's getting dangerous, Don. Um <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, that's, th- those are all the stuff that I had on my list this week or this, this I have episode. To. We should have covered this probably during uh, follow up, but I have to, I have to just give a shout out to our, our, uh, listener of the podcast who in, um, perfect timing tweeted us both today. And that's uh, Chuck Haas tweeting us about life hacker and leftovers. Yes. And, and, uh, I don't, I don't know if you, uh, want to talk about this, but yeah, let's talk but about Chuck it. basically linked to a, uh, life link, linked us to a life hacker post today about leftovers, which was actually, it's not bad, well-written. And I didn't, I didn't see it too much to object to it. And then I started reading the comments and uh, <laughs> I just got really depressed. Oh, the comments are the greatest. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this Life After uh, article basically details, um, you know, the difference between food at room temperature, talks a little bit about refrigeration. They uh, go with the... Um, uh, I, I don't know who who owns the term. Uh, when in doubt, throw it out. Um, but uh, you know, basically goes through and says some things are are okay. Other things uh, could uh, have created a nice environment for if there was any contamination for it to grow. And then yeah, there are some some great great comments in here. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about any. Did you have any specific uh, well, ones that you love? Why don't you start? I'm still finding the article, so if you've got it handy, go ahead. Um, here, here's one of my favorites. Every time I see a phrase like, quote, harmful protein toxins, I immediately become <laughs> skeptical. We've gotten on for thousands of years storing food without refrigerators and freezers, and we've done just fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and then, but there's a nice, uh, a nice response to that of, well, if gotten on, you mean we as a species are still here then yes, but it is kind of meaningless without looking at the historical rates of foodborne illness and death. Ooh, and, nice one. Yeah. And then the poster says, oh, please show me the historical rates of foodborne illnesses in hunter gatherer, gatherer societies. <laughs> and then it got into a flame war. I, I I just looked at the the first comment that says I rarely keep cooked food in the fridge. I keep rice, cooked meat, soups, leftovers, and so on regularly at room temperature for more than forty eight hours without a problem. And I am live and well. I find North America's obsession with food safety a bit excessive. And I just wanted to say alive and well for now. Hey, let me know how that botulism works out. Hey, exactly. 
Um, how about uh, just heat your leftovers to 165? No matter how old and bacteria-ridden, 165 will kill it. Uh, parentheses. So they taught me in food safety school. <laughs> oh God, not my food safety no, school, man. Someone else's food safety school. <laughs> I can't can't sleep, man. Someone on the internet is wrong. Yeah. Uh, if it turns green, toss it out. <laughs> so green uh. is is the uh, uh, that's that's what the pathogens will do. Turn it green. I'll let the leftover pizza I'm having for dinner be the judge of that. Uh, or, and I think we should probably end on this one, give it to your wife, wait a few hours, see what happens, eat or discard as appropriate. <laughs> oh, those funny people on the internet. Oh, wow. So, yeah, thanks to Chuck Haas for that, though. Appreciate I appreciate him being on the lookout for stuff for us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that was a good one. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, we, it'd be a full-time job. Talking to people on the internet about fighting, safety. Fighting the internet, one post at a time. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh, um, it, uh, just like just so angry, Don. So angry. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think that might be a show. I think so. I think I think we call it we call it there. Uh, and uh, so thank you, as always, for catching up with me. Uh, appreciate your time. Uh, glad that uh, it's, been, it's been too long for us. But uh, we will uh, – um, the listeners probably won't know because we, like, staggered this out a little bit. So um, it'll, it'll look like it's the same time, for, time frame for them. But, uh, again, thanks, thanks a lot. Uh, for listeners, please feel free to uh, rate us in uh, iTunes and uh, send feedback via either iTunes or the foodsafetytalk.com website. And, as always, um, uh, thanks for listening. Because we, we would do this without you, but it's much more fun that, that we know that people are listening. Indeed, and thanks to thanks to everybody that that texts us and and facebooks us and tweets us with with information and and uh, gives us feedback on the show. You know, let us know you want more David Tharp stories, less David Tharp stories. Uh, you want the other guy to talk more, the other guy to talk less. You know, more rambling, less rambling. Just let us know because we'll do it all for you. Laugh with us, laugh, laugh at us. us, whatever, whatever it is. More, but... more talk about urine, less talk about urine. Yeah. Exactly. You're in you're in safety talk. Is <laughs> thanks thanks for listening to another episode of Urine You're in the Internet. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh all right, Don. I think that's it. So we'll talk right. to you later. Alright, good night, Ben. Bye bye.
Cool. Hey, so I always check this late. Um, but we have there's another comment on the yeah. on, on iTunes from uh, Pardeep Brar, who is a wow. University of Florida grad. Cool. Uh, and here's the comment. This podcast helps in getting experts perspective or opinion on different topics, which range from new iPhone software to <laughs> recent food safety recalls. And I'm really enjoying every bit of it. Much oh, <laughs> since we're talking about software, uh, Mavericks, how about that? Uh, so guess what? Not, have not, uh, have not upgraded it. Uh, haven't, I, I haven't done it. I, I, I wisely, or perhaps not wisely. I, I chose, I chose not to upgrade before I went to China, but yeah. the first thing I did when I got back and, uh, it's awesome. Is it? Yeah. So I, 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 the the single most important reason to upgrade is you'll get better uh, uh, battery life on your laptop. Oh, well done. That I'm in need of that. Um, awesome. Yeah. No, I haven't. Uh, for same reason, I've been traveling too much to sort of sit down, and I didn't know how long it was going to take, and I didn't want to be like a mess and have to leave and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. I mean, even if it's error free, it's just not a good idea to upgrade your laptop yeah. right before you before you go out of the country. So that's, yeah, that's my, that's my mantra. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't talk too much about this in the show, but, um, I, I think I told you about some of the new shows that I've been watching. You talked, you talked about new girl last, last, yes. I, I've been watching veep. Did I tell okay. you this? Have you seen this show? No, I have not. It's an HBO show, so it's a it's an iTunes purchase, but it's mm-hmm. uh, um, it's pretty awesome. It's Julia Louis Dreyfus, mm-hmm. uh, and she's the vice president, and it's mm-hmm. and I love it. So I don't know if I told you, but you um, did. You you sent me a, a, t- a, a email. Oh, I did. I sent me, yeah three shows that you're now watching that I don't have time to watch. Yes, that's it. You need to watch them. You need to put them in your in 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 your field notes book. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I do, I do. Put them on, just mark it down. Okay. Um, and I have a like after dark question for you. That's probably we could have done it in the show. So, as an editor of a journal, mm-hmm. do you ever not send articles out for review? Like if there's if they're particularly bad? We, or- yes, we call that an AEM parlance we call that an editorial rejection and and a the aem process is you send it to um well there's a couple of different ways to do it you can do it uh via email or you can do it via the the web software that we have but basically you send it to at least one other editor Mm. and you say basically not in such blunt words as this is crap this is garbage (laughs) i want to i want to kill it uh will you help me kill it um and then they they concur they don't um and and so other editors send me comments and i send other editors comments and um you know the 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 easy to kill ones are easy because people just say yeah that's not aem material but the ones that are more on the fence like i'm i'm kind of a softy and so i will give it if it's on the fence i'll i'll send it out and i'll let the reviewers kill it Ah. um but but yeah for sure that's that's called an editorial rejection and we do that on a regular basis i the reason why i ask is i've in the last 48 hours reviewed three papers that were all garbage and i don't know Mm -hmm. if i'm just in a ranty kind of mood Mm -hmm. as per my foster farm stuff um but but one of them so uh, and and this could be just me in in my little section of our field right of i think that it's a waste of time to publish papers that only focus on knowledge and attitude change 
at all. Um, because there's a whole bunch of literature that's been published that say that that doesn't do any, that doesn't correlate to practices. Right. So why would we publish something that only t- shows us knowledge change? Cause it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's effective. It just meant mm-hmm. that you change knowledge. Um, and so I'm getting to the point that all three of these papers had, had some, uh, facet of, of, of focusing on knowledge change. And I just want to, I, I just want to reject them all, but mm-hmm. I still feel like I'm like, I need to make a case for why I'm rejecting them other than like, like it's not a one. I, I kind of wish that the editors of the journals, and maybe this is what I need to communicate with them is, is I don't think that they should send these out for review because they're going to get published. I don't, I uh, probably, um, even though I rejected someone else probably isn't going to. And I don't think they should be. I just don't think they're very good. <laughs> This is this is making me sound even more like of a uh, like a, a heartless person. You're, today. No, you're. It's good. You're you're well beyond your years in crotchety old madness. And no, and, and I have the same thing where it's like people publish yet another paper for modeling listeria in the same thing that we've already modeled listeria in. You know, it's kind of like, well. Okay, so you or you made a new people love to make a new model. It's yeah. Like, well, okay. Well, the old models are just fine, and what you really need to do is you need to validate an an old model against a new system or a new organism. And there's like, yeah, it's just like there's so much. It's like, no, you really don't need to do that. We already done that, and 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 yeah, and 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 for sure, I guess the on the other hand, though, if I, since I'm being the Sock wimpy one. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So, um, I think there's a home for everything, and certainly there's like there's stuff that gets submitted to AEM that's survey research, where somebody surveys X for Y in country Z, and it's like no. That's not, not going to go for AEM. It's yeah. not going to fly. But, you know, there's probably a journal somewhere that will publish it, and it's good information, and somebody needs to know it. But it's not the AEM readers that need to know it, right? So people don't come to AEM for that. So I guess the question is, are these cutting-edge, um, you know, s- consumer survey behavior change journals, in which case, yes, you absolutely need to stand firm, or are these – I don't want to say marginal, but are these yeah. sort of food safety journals that publish lower quality work? In which case, you're like, well, okay, is it? Is it? Yes, admittedly, it's not. It's not focusing on what we need to focus on, but is it good enough for this journal? Yeah, so that's uh, that's a good way to look at it. And I'd say um, the three, all three of them, I don't think are good enough for the journal. Like I expect more from the journals, and this is the, the same journal. No, it's three different journals. One's okay. Journal of Food Safety, one's British Food Journal, and one's Food Protection Trends. And and I guess the part of you know, my food, um, they all are different. You know, kind of you know different readership and, and different types of articles that are in there. Very similar articles that I that I'm reviewing, or that I reviewed, and. Um, the food protection one trends one. I just want it to be better than you know. I, I, I you know I have a a feeling of of ownership on that journal. You know, like like I want I want it to move. I want it to to have better stuff. And it's not that it has bad stuff. It has very good stuff. I just want it to. I don't want it to publish yep. something that's bad. Yep. Um, British Food Journal is is typically really good for this kind of work, and mainly because it's Chris Griffith is the is the editor and 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 doesn't. You know, 
doesn't mess around. The stuff they publish there is really good. Journal of Food Science is not a journal that I read a whole lot of, but that's where this one, you know, I kind of expect that it would be a little more cutting edge stuff that goes in there from, from the food microbiology side of things. And, and it just, that, that, that was actually the worst of the three. It, it was not a very good article. And I just kind of want, I, I just want, I, like, I don't want the our editor to send it to me because I don't think they should. Well, and, and I <laughs> and, guess what, but, you, what you have to do in those cases is to, to vote your conscience and say, mm-hmm. look, this needs to be rejected and here's why. Uh, and you cite the three best papers that show that, um, what is it? Um, knowledge and attitude. Don't yeah. Don't, don't equal practice. Yeah. Don't and, equal practice. And then you send it back to the editor and you say, look, it needs to be rejected, and this is the reason why. And then you know, say that to the author, um, and then in the comments to the editor, say that you know, basically, you think any paper that doesn't look at behavior change is should should be given an editorial rejection and shouldn't even go out for review. Um, but as long as you vote your conscience and then you kind of – but that's that's where the, the confidential comments to the editor mm-hmm. are useful because then if you do that often enough, eventually – and certainly Chris should know better because he publishes this kind of stuff. So um, – but again, you know, he's a busy editor and maybe yeah. he doesn't you know, read the articles before he sends them his, out for review because you know, some editors don't do that. His, <clears> yeah, <throat> his was the, the – it wasn't as bad. It was the Journal of Food Science one that was the – the worst one, right? And 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 yeah. So again, it in part it's the expertise of the editor. If they don't know what? enough to know that that shouldn't be done, then you need to kind of just sort of gently school them. I mentioned that. Yeah. Well, good. Okay. So that's the tactic that I took with with JFS um, was saying I don't think that these are suitable types of. I, I didn't cite it. I'm, I'll go back and change those. I just basically said. These, you know, uh, th- this has been shown to not matter. Yeah, yeah, and but but citing it's going to make it when m- people when people criticize my work and they don't give references that pisses yep. me off. So yep, yep. do do the authors the service of telling pointing them to the literature to say exactly why what they're doing doesn't matter. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I haven't. That's uh, that is good. Good advice. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Ah, so I was look at that. We even had like useful after dark today. Oh, and speaking of speaking of useful after dark, um, things that since you're giving me stuff that I'm not going to watch, I need to yeah. use some things that you're not going to watch. And this is all this is all courtesy of Merlin Mann, who's been talking about these uh, this this trilogy of British movies, um, Shaun of the Dead. Hot Fuzz and the End of the World. Yeah, I know Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. Okay, yeah. End of the World's well, of the world new, right? Like out on it's about yeah. to, it's, I guess it's out on DVD. It's about to be out on iTunes. So anyway, I I uh, rented Shaun of the Dead and I bought Hot Fuzz and I'm going to go back and buy Shaun of the Dead because uh, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it for a while. I mean, it was probably like 2002 or 2004, maybe that that came out. It's been a while. Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that movie. Yeah. Cool. Um, anyway, so all right, so I'm telling you about stuff that you've already seen. So. Well, that's good. That's that, it keeps me in the loop, Don. <laughs> but but and, uh, but I have uh, I'm on to Adventure uh, episode or uh, season three of Adventure Time and got a bunch of those downloaded on my uh, on my iPad. You're not watching that yet. I'm not. No, haven't made it there yet. It's on the list. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna buy you the first episode, and and then you'll just have to, <laughs> and then I'll have to watch, watch it with your kids. I will. That that'll probably make me do it. <laughs> All right. To, I'm gonna buy it for you right now. Today we we watched uh, My Little Pony. 
Um, but there's a, it's a new version of My let's Little just, Pony. Let's be completely clear that you're a man and you have two sons and yep. you're letting them watch My Little Pony. I am. I am. Bronies. There's, there's, you got to Google that. You will I, see. I know. Yeah, no. I, I know about bronies. <laughs> There's there's a whole there's a whole subculture and only I know there's a whole subculture. <laughs> I know, Ben. Uh, so I'm, one thing to know there's a subculture it's another to deliberately indoctrinate your son. I'm not sure I'm deliberate. I just I don't. I uh, the hippie side of me lets them watch what what they want. Um, <laughs> why do they want to watch that? They want, I don't know why, but uh, but I, I don't want to take that creative outlet away from them. <laughs> well. Okay, I, I guess that's good. That if, as long as it was their idea, it was uh, true. Been their idea. There, uh, they they're into it. Okay, that's uh, all I got. Anything all else? Right. Anything else no. going on? I'm good. What's your what's your what email address do you use for iTunes? Uh, the uh, my NCSU one Benjamin okay. underscore. Yeah, that's what I was going to use. Fantastic. I'm gonna. I will watch this. Okay. This, I'm gifted to you. I'm, it's it's done. It's good. All right. Oh, cool. Um, all right. Well, I'll see you. You're, so you're flying out tomorrow sometime. Yeah, tomorrow afternoon. So I'll be there tomorrow night by cool. myself. Sorry, pining for you, Ben. I know. I know. It'll just make that. It'll just make our experience. <laughs> that lunch coffee so much sweeter. Make it so, and then our experience on the twentieth will be mind blowing. <laughs> Can't wait. I know. I know. Uh, Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to that, actually. That should be fun. Little, yeah, little Thanksgiving. I, that's so, so great for those guys to reach out to us and uh, offer to, to have us on a podcast. Yeah. Do you know, when you did it, Was it? Just, did you just do Skype? Like, Or yep. was it? Yep. Okay. Yep. So uh, there's no, no different stuff. That's good. Yep. So we should we should explain, uh, in case this makes it into the, oh, yeah. the show, we're, we're, we're both, both Ben and I are being guests on the Pulling the String podcast. And uh, they have uh, uh, one of the the people that's going to be hosting us has a, actually I guess it's a it's a book from uh, the Take Control uh, Books folks um, on Take Control of Thanksgiving and so we're going to be on to talk about food safety for Thanksgiving so I, it's uh, it's really cool of them to agree to have us on and I, it's uh, it's it's great to it'd be great to, to hang out on the twentieth it will be it'll be it's like a little podcast intercession for us Indeed. Well, good all right well have a good night. Enjoy Thanks, the too. last of your bourbon. My Miller Lite is finished. Uh, my bourbon's dead too. Yeah. Well, well, to the to the coffee. <laughs> to the <laughs> off to bed. Off to bed. <laughs> All right. See you later, Don. Bye, bye, bye. Bye.